Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. Hello and welcome to episode two of Startup Hustle. I'm your host, Matt DeCourcy, here with my co-host. Am I the host or the co-host? Let's do a Rochambeau real quick to see who wins. Ready? Ah, uh, paper beats rock. Looks like right, DeCourcy right, is right. the host so of this episode. So Matt is the host and Matt is the co-host. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. All right. So Matt is definitely so the host. So this is Matt Watson. And this is Matt DeCourcy. And, and so- if you can figure out who's who... Congratulations. Yes. Good luck with that. Um, I want to point out as well that Matt Watson wants to, what did you want to name the podcast? Oh man. Trying to figure out if you want to fund your extra bedroom. Okay. What do we call this? Well, you know, I think what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about how a business raises money. Okay. Or shouldn't raise money. Or if it even can. That's a good point. So... Recently, I've done a couple presentations for Global Entrepreneur Week here in Kansas City, and that's what really drove the topic of today's episode because so many people that were down there were seeking funding for their business. Why did they let you present? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure. Have you ever raised funding? Uh, I wasn't presenting on raising funding. Well, why, why in the world were they listening to you? Uh, because I think they wanted to start a business and own did, it. And did you had, write a book about this? I did. You did write a book yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, you're in it. I am in your book. Yes, yes. And that's and, sort of what we're talking about today, right? It's it's The name of your book is The Million Dollar Bedroom. It is. And part of what we're talking about today, I, I think is the goal of the conversation today, is to talk about how to go from your bedroom to the next step. Right. Right, or not to the next step, or building a bigger bedroom. I don't, I don't know what the next step is, but that's what we need to talk about, right? Yeah. And I think that the, the reason that we need to talk about it is simply because it seems like everybody's looking for funding. They and, are. And everybody deserves it. Yeah. And the problem is, is there's not enough of it to go yes. around based on that criteria. Right. So I think that it's really important for us to start by getting into some of the, the reality of funding and your chances of getting funded. Right. And what a reasonable expectation of the amount of funds you could possibly raise, where they could come from, how that could be structured. Uh, It really goes on and on, and including all the way down to how you're going to present your idea to the people that you want to collect money from. So where do we start? I think we should start with giving a little time to what makes an idea or a company fundable. If if someone, so Matt, you're somewhat active in our local startup scene as an investor. What are the things that make you believe that a company or its founders are fundable? So I've I've done a few angel investments. Um, I'm not necessarily looking for more of them, so please don't contact me later. But if you're listening to this necessarily, but... um, you know, some of them I've done through angel groups, you know, so where we're at in Kansas City, there's uh, Angel Capital Group, there's Mid-American Angels, there's some other different groups like that, which are great um, from an investor perspective to work through those because they help filter the all the ideas down to the, the best ideas. And then as a, a entrepreneur that's trying to raise capital, those groups are very helpful as well because you can go to one group and you can win them over, you can, you know, potentially get a, a bigger check instead of chasing a whole bunch of, of people around. But um, all that said, you know, several of the investments I've done have, have been just one-on-one. They've been um, local people who I've met through other introductions or whatever. Um, and, and a lot of times it's, they're just simple like coffee, right? It's like meets made for coffee. And it's like, so-and-so told me about your idea. I just want to learn. I just want to learn about it. And, there's a few things I'm always looking for in those those moments. Um, the first thing is, do I understand what their business idea is? Do I understand the industry? Is it something I care about? Is it something I'm passionate about? Um, I, I, for me as an investor, I think that's part of it because I know that angel investing is extremely high risk. I know that startup investing is extremely high risk. Now, now and, wait a minute. Let, let me stop you there for a second. You're investing in angels? 
Oh, no, 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 no. I am an angel investor. Oh, we should probably define what that is. Well, you know, I don't know what the dictionary definition of that means, but I know the um, the working definition I have, which is basically a, uh, a single person that's an investor that um, is contributing cash to the business, right? So usually, you know, it's not a, fund, a VC fund. It's not that type of, of corporate or, or VC fund. It's an individual. Okay, so. there there is actually a very strict definition okay, of what's an the definition? angel investor. It's a, well, it's a high net worth individual, and um, you know, as we progress through this episode, I think it's probably important to let everybody know that you and I aren't uh, licensed financial professionals, and we're going to give you information based on our own experience. And you have to make the decision what you do with that information. So, you know, with that, the definition of I have two definitions for an angel investor. And I'm actually going to start with the simplest one, because I think your angel network is the people around you. The angels are the people that care about you. It could be your mom. It could be the guy next door. It could be your sister. It could be anybody that has a belief in you or your idea and is willing to do something that, you know, adds any kind of finance to your business. Now, when the government looks at it or the IRS, they're going to look at what they call accredited accredited angels. And these are people that have a high net worth. And there's some like, for example, and, you know, you looking at people that have made X amount of cash. So, So on Google, it says you have to be an accredited investor. You have to have a net worth of a million dollars. And that cannot include equity right. from your home. And you have to, or have an income of at least $200,000 a year for the last two years. Correct. So I, I think with the new stuff around was the Jobs Act and uh, crowdsourcing. And so some of those things are in flux and maybe changing. But traditionally, those have been your angel investors, right? They've been high net worth individuals. Now, now the reason that these accredited uh, investors and that status exists is because when you're selling equity in your company, you're not allowed to exchange what are known as securities without going through the process that the Security Exchange Commission goes through to let you issue stock. Right. So they don't want people. Now, I'm just assuming that they assume, they meaning the government. Um, that if you have accumulated enough wealth or you're making that much money, that you may be savvy enough right. with that money. They're trying to protect, protect the everyday citizen who might not understand that right. from buying stock in a company or something that they don't know anything about. So, so, so if, we, if we go back to where we were at, though, we were talking about I meet with these people and I'm right. potentially their angel investor. right? Correct. And I'm trying to figure out, do I want to invest in this company or not? And um, to me, it, it's about the people. It's it's understanding who I'm investing in. It, it's the jockey on the horse, right? Do I, do I believe that, that these people will figure this out? There's going to be a lot of adversity in any startup, any new business. Do I believe that these people can make it happen? They can figure out how to make it happen. Um, but the thing I was touching on is, is I really feel like you've got to um, understand the business. You, you potentially have to be a little passionate about the problem that's trying to be solved. Because I know that this investment, there's an extremely high rate of failure. and But if it's a problem I think needs to be solved and it's an idea that I'm kind of passionate about, it's sort of like Kickstarter, right? Sometimes I, I you back something on Kickstarter and you're like, oh, this this little gizmo thing that would help my kids as a, you know, as a parent is awesome. Maybe they never figure it out, but I'm like, I'm willing to back, you know, put in the 100 bucks, whatever it is, right? Now, that's a lot different than if you're an angel investor and you're shipping in 10,000, 50,000, 100,000. It's all relative, right? To somebody who's extremely rich, that 100,000 is the same as 100. But um, you, you've got to be, you've got to care about what you're investing in. And you know it's extremely high risk. And you're, you're betting on the people and you potentially think that the problem they're trying to solve is important and needs to be solved. The, for example, one of the companies I invested in was doing things around content marketing, I, um, content marketing is something I understand. It's something I have experience with. And so when I was talking to them, it was very clear, uh, what they were trying to do. I understood the market. I was a user of the product. I'm like, I get it after, you know, a 30 minute conversation. I'm like, I'm in. Right. But then I meet other people that have all kinds of, of ideas. And I'm like, man, I don't understand this at all. I, you know, what, I mean, you were at global entrepreneurship week. Uh, what, what kind of weird business plans did you, did you see and how did, you know, what was your reaction to this? Well, I, you know, I saw a few and it wasn't, it was more so in people just wanted to discuss their idea with me. 
And we hit on this the last episode, but even just today, I had someone come up to me and say, I've got a great idea, but I can't tell you about it. And I literally told the guy, I said, cool, let me know when that changes. That, that's I, don't, great, I don't have time to discuss this. That's right a now. great way to get funding, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. That is the best. I, I don't even know what he wanted because I actually didn't continue the if, conversation. If you want to get yeah. funding, that's how you do it. Yeah. And like, I have the best idea in the world. Give me all of your money and I am not telling you about it. I think I, I, I had a lot of people that wanted to pitch me on an idea and they didn't have anything written down. They didn't have any idea or plan and they definitely did not have any experience. Right. And that's, a, that's one thing I think is pretty important if you're trying it. So what makes a business fundable? And you mentioned the jockey versus the horse. All right. So when, and let's define that because if you're betting on the jockey, you're betting on the people that are associated with the project, being able to steer that horse towards a, a first, second or third place finish. And the other way around, you're, you're, more entranced in believing in the product itself and hoping that the people on the horse will be able to just make, make it run straight enough right. to get to the finish line. Now, hopefully you get a little bit of both and hopefully you have a little bit of both. But I think that the thing that really blew me away was how many people that had no, you know, so last night I did a presentation about uh, startups for non-tech founders and I had, literally a room full of people that wanted to start technology companies that had no experience at all with technology. And some of them were trying to raise as much as $650,000 for a seed idea. Let's actually stop there for a second, because if if you have no product and you have nothing but an idea and a piece of paper, you're a seed stage business. So, you know, we wanted to discuss when, how, and what makes a company fundable. Well, you're going to have, an, and I told my group this last night, you're going to have a much easier time if you have anything. Right. Traction, customers, a product. Anything. anything. I mean, like you're trying to raise money and you don't even have a simple landing page for your right. website. That doesn't make email any sense. address, a business card. You know, you know, that's a hot, a hot button for me as well as when people give me a business plan and they don't even have an email address set up at the domain that they're trying to pitch me on. Well, but so how much effort should they put into it though? I mean, should they, should they spend uh, all the time writing a 50 page business plan or is that too much? Uh, that drives me crazy too. If you can't, if you're a seed stage or a concept business and you're trying to get my attention, you have like one minute. I, I agree. I mean, as so, you know, when I do angel investments, I go to these group meetings or I meet with individuals that are local yeah, I mean, it's, it's a couple minutes, right? It's like, it's like what's dating. the pitch? Yeah. I mean, either I get it or I not, yeah. and I'm going to make that decision really fast. Now, if I make the decision of, like, I'm interested, then I'm going to dig in more, yeah. right? But I've, I've decided I'm interested or not interested probably in that first minute. I mean, it's, it's dating, like you said, right? And if you can't make your point and you can't convey the message for whatever it is that you're selling on, one, on the front, not right. even the front and the back, the front of one piece of paper, then it's too complex. You need to simplify. It's, you need to. Well, I'm not going to read that. Yeah, as an investor, I'm not going to read all that stuff. Well, that's another thing too. Is when you deal with a lot of people that control and make decisions about investment, they're Type A people. They're not going to read your 45 page no. plan. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, and that's nobody. true. That's true. So you know, there's some certain things that you can do to pretty much put yourself out of the game as soon as possible. Now, so, so but one of the things you mentioned, I think that's really important, is. Um, these people that they have an idea and they want to start a company. And the the thing I see all the time that drives me crazy is people that have an idea for a software company and they want to start a software company, but they know nothing about creating software at all. Right. And I, I, it would be no different than me wanting to start a law practice. What, what do I know about being a lawyer? I know nothing. Why would I start a law practice? Right now, as, you heard, you, but didn't you hear that you make a lot of money doing that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to disrupt the whole industry too. I'm the whole thing. I'm going to turn upside down. That's my goal. And I know everything there is to do that. You know, I know re- nothing. Rewriting law. I know nothing. It would be the worst idea of my life to start a law practice, right? Well, there's all these people that think they want to start a software company. And if you don't know anything about software, you, you really got two options. Well, I guess you got three options. You got to figure out how to write software, or maybe you can find a tool that can help you create software that are like, there's a lot of these like kind of low code tools now that you can sort of use if it's like a really simple thing, but odds are you're going to have to find a co-founder. You're going to have to find a technical co-founder that can create the software. Your last option is to have a whole lot of money, 
right? You're going to have to have a lot of capital to go hire software developers. And software developers are crazy expensive unless you hire some developers that are offshore somewhere, which which is a more affordable option, but it, that causes harder communication problems because they're not in the same room with you. So, you know, Matt, you, the other Matt, you have uh, a software company. You're not a software developer. So how did you get to have a software company? I mean, I think as somebody who has made that leap, how did you get there? Well, fortunately for the way that Gigabook was started, I had other businesses that had utilized programmers. They were, um, they were not high-tech companies, but you had developers yes. that kind of helped you yes. with the business. Right? And we had, we had developed a number of different you know, we were just building our own proprietary tools. And, you know, recently... You, you, you weren't selling software. No. You were, you, you were creating no. it for your internal use. Well, we couldn't find what we needed right. to do things right. the way that we needed to do it. And they weren't that difficult right. to build. So we built them. Right. And with that, as things progressed, we didn't have as much of a need for these programmers. However, I was in this scenario where I couldn't not have them. But if I did have them in order to keep them, I had to give them full-time jobs because adults that support families and wives and have house payments typically don't want a part-time gig, and at least not the good people. Mm -hmm. So I had this, what I refer to as excess capacity, and I was able to start retooling and repurposing some of the things that we had built. Like we had built calendars for uh, keeping track of our marketing and we right. had done reminders to remind us when to ship. You're things. trying to solve your own problems. Right. right. Well, we, well, we tried to take the Legos and put them back together and build something different. So yeah. I had a history with that, but you know, I have had to teach myself a really, really large amount of things along the way, just to under, just to be able to communicate with them and understand. And, and yeah, I'm, I've been very reliant on having other people build the technology, write the code and stuff like that. Now with that, I'm not just passively sitting there and watching them do it. I'm able to do what I like to do the best, which is things like sales and marketing and, and, and get the message out there and talk to people about what we do. And that's where I'm best served working right. for the company. And, and I've told you before, I'd make a horrible programmer because I smashed my computer. So, so when I started my first company, I was the opposite side, opposite side of this, right? So I was the technical person. Um, the way that my first company got started was my, who became my non-technical co-founder was looking for a technical co-founder. That's how I actually started the business. It wasn't my idea at all to start the company. Um, the other guy uh, was looking to solve some problems. He was going around to people he knew and said, hey, do you know a software developer that could help me? And ultimately, that's how him and I got connected together and started the business. I was that technical co-founder. So point being, there, there are multiple ways to start a company. And especially if you're starting a software company, you you know, I, as the technologist, didn't have the business idea, but somebody else did. And by them seeking me out was the two of us together were able to make it happen, right? And so back to where we're kind of started with this conversation, if you have a great business idea, but you don't know anything about creating software. You've got a few different options, right? You took one option. Um, you were able to kind of build some stuff in house from a different business and then kind of spun that out and learned the, the whole software business over time. Um, and then you got to go find a technical co-founder is, is one of the other big options. Uh, and that's how I got found. Like I, it, I was not the entrepreneur. I was just the technical co-founder. And at the time I was 22 and had no idea what I was doing in any way, shape or forms. And, and where were you working at the time when that, when that occurred? Uh, I was, well, so I was actually working in a medical laboratory writing software is where I was working when I started my first business. Um, but yeah, you just got to get started. And I think that's something that I said about five times last night during the presentation is, and I think Matt really hit a good point there. You have to start, even if it's terrible, you have to start at some point. And, and, you know, we're going to, we're going to probably have to get back into that at another point, but you're doing yourself a huge favor if you just get anything started, because trying to get people involved in projects that aren't even started is very difficult. Well, and and one thing you can do if you're trying to start a software business is you don't actually have to have the software to sell it. I know that sounds crazy, but you don't. What you can do is create mock-ups of it, right? Open up 
Photoshop or some tool that'll let you create what the software should look like and the functionality it should do. And there's really cool tools that exist to do this stuff right now. Um, and mock up what you think the software should do and then potentially go meet with your customers and validate the idea and get feedback. And potentially one of them would even fund it. Say, yeah, I'll give you the $100,000 to build this product. If you can build it, go figure it out. Now, all of a sudden, you've got somebody that's willing to pay for it, which makes it even easier to raise capital as well. So sometimes it's that it's back to the hustle, right? That's that's kind of our whole mantra. It's that hustle of like, if you can't create the software, the next step is designing it. What is it supposed to look like? Validating it. Take the next step. I think a healthy dose of, dose of obsession is good for these projects as well because, you know, we keep keen on the term passion. Um, if you're not passionate about it, it's going to show. I'm going to know. I'm, I can tell. I can tell if you're not passionate about your idea. I can almost just like look in your eyes and know. I can say, wow, this guy's legitimately excited about it. This girl's legitimately excited about it. And she really seems to know what's up. And, but, but wait a second. You're saying so some of these people you meet, you feel like they're starting a startup because it, it's creating a job for them? I well, It's just it, a job? In some regards, yeah. Yeah, I do. And the thing is, though, is, you know, it's such a tough road and it's there's so much that you're going to sacrifice and give up while you're hustling. You know, there's times that you're going to be away from your friends or your family. And that's the trade off that you get for the right. for the hustle that you've got to put in. And and if you're not willing to do that, you're going to quit. And therefore, that passion, when if I'm investing in something or getting involved in something as an advisor or whatever I'm doing, like that's important to me. Like I want to know that you're going to be able to get past the rough points. Right. For me, you know, I'm always talking about the path to revenue. Um, that's a big thing for me. Um, if your idea is going to take three years to bring a dollar in, that freaks me out because I know I've learned how expensive. And, you know, I told you I spent a quarter million dollars on Gigabook before it brought in a dollar. And maybe close to another amount similar before it had brought in a thousand dollars. One of the mistakes that people it takes time to build the machine. It does. I mean, that, it, that's the thing that people don't understand about a software business. You're building a machine. It's like your your software is sort of like a factory. Like you're building that machine. Uh, products are complicated. They're expensive. Uh, it's not like a service business, you know. And it takes a lot of time, energy, and money to build that. And it can take months or years. And I don't think a lot of founders or entrepreneurs understand the complexity that goes into that, like the statements you just made, right? I mean, I'm a developer, so I understand it. But, you know, my current business, it took us a couple of years before we got to first revenue because the uh, the product was just so complex, the problem we were trying to solve. But we knew what we were doing. We knew there was a market for it. It just took time. Let's talk about a couple of the other things that investors like in general and you know, then I think we can kind of get into a little bit of the different stages and types of funding. Um, I, you know, one of the things is, is if your idea isn't unique or if it doesn't fill a specific need or niche or solve a problem, uh, like we had talked about in episode one, you're going to have a very hard time getting people interested in putting money into it. Uh, I hear it's really crowded in here. There's a lot of people doing this. So some of the things that you, that your idea should have are, you know, your experience, your passion, but what is your specific advantage in a marketplace? Why are you different? And I had someone tell me last night that they had an idea that, you know, over time it was going to evolve to where they were going to just be able to take on Amazon and eBay. Oh, okay. They, yeah, that sounds like a, yeah. I literally, I would invest in that. I literally said to this guy, I said, no, you're not. You said, good luck. No, I said, no, you're not. He said, what do you mean? I said, you're never going to take on Amazon and eBay. What you, like, that doesn't even make any sense, but that's par for the course. What's his name? Elon Musk. Yes. If it was Elon, I would have, I would have went with it. it. I find most of my day is spent trying to get Elon Musk to quit asking me for money. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's just part of my life, and I'm getting used to that. Now, with that, some of the things that you're going to have to consider as you're raising money for your company is, you know, we talked about what stage you're in. So if you're in a seed stage of a business, you're literally that. You're a seed that is going into raw dirt that's going to be watered, and you're hoping something grows. It could be manure. And, and, and it usually is. Yeah. And so with that, 
if you're raising money in a seed stage, that is the riskiest part that an investor is going to have in your process because they don't even know if you're going to be able to come out with a product. Well, and you talk about being different in a marketplace. The the other thing, though, is sometimes you can latch on to trends in a market, right? So maybe it's a busy market, but if you can latch on to one of those trends. So, for example, today, it's everything's about artificial intelligence and machine learning or blockchain or some of these types of things that are really big trends these days. And maybe those are complicated markets that have a lot of players, but you potentially could have some success because there's just a lot of investors and VCs that are willing to throw money at that because it's kind of the hot thing, kind of like back to the dot-com bubble at the end of the 90s. Like anybody who wanted to sell anything online, like we're going to sell diapers online and that's our big business idea. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. That was the market at the time. And so part of it is understanding the, the environment you're in and what the hot trends are. But it, it, you know, absolutely. If you're like, oh, well, our idea is just to like compete with Amazon and we're going to put them out of business. then yeah, that's, yeah, that's probably a really bad idea. Now, if you were trying to say that when Amazon first got started, that might've been the, the trend at the time and in a market. But, um, you know, I think the other thing that I think we touched on this in the last episode, but you know, potentially you can compete with Amazon, but you got to compete in a certain way in a certain thing, right? I mean, Amazon sells everything, but, but, and they're awesome at selling everything, but there are lots of other websites that sell stuff, right? I'm like, there's websites you go to and they specialize in selling outdoor furniture or whatever it is. So you, you can still compete, but you got to find your segment of the market and your niche, right? How do you do that with Gigabook? Well, that's... You have competitors. Yeah, how do you, yeah how do you compete? I've, I've got a lot. Um, well, we first looked at something, and I think it's an easy mistake to make in the beginning because you say, wow, there's 25 million businesses we can market this to. Right. It's actually the worst way to look at it yeah. because now all of a sudden we've got 25 million businesses to market to. Where do we start? And it was really broad. So for us, we immediately gave up on a few things. Like we don't do food or medical, and we really don't specialize in things like salons. And that's the number one thing when people say, oh, this, they hear about Gigabook and they say, oh, that'd be great for my friend's hair salon. Yeah, it really won't be. Right. Why? Because I've got big, big box competitors that specialize in just that. Right. So the way we differentiate ourselves. You let them have the market. Yeah. You give them that market. We immediately surrendered. And like with food, uh, we didn't want to compete with Open Table. Right. Yep. That makes total sense. Who was purchased for a billion dollars. Like they won. Right. So, you know, give up on that. And we then looked at this really long tail, meaning like these really niche type businesses that were probably never going to have a booking platform that was going to meet their needs. So we decided to become highly customizable. Right. And we service the places that can't get what they need from industry-specific booking platforms. Now, with that, our strength is our weakness. As you're well aware, there's a lot of things in Gigabook, and sometimes that freaks people out. Right. But with that, there are a ton of people that, and a ton of businesses that find that we're the only people that will allow them to make right. specific customization or do things because our other competitors who are so niche and focused in order to keep their customers in the lane they need to be in, they, they can't to, get, they, they can't let them, they have to save themselves. They, they kind of dumb their product down to that one thing, right? Yeah. Like, so at Venn Solutions, my last company, we provided CRM for car dealers and yeah, you could have used salesforce.com or any of these other CRM products, right, in a car dealership, but they weren't designed for a car dealership. They were designed for any random thing. And really all we did is is made a product that was totally focused on car dealers. We didn't we didn't sell to anybody that wasn't a car dealer. And that's what allowed us to own that market is that specialization. And so I think part of our advice here is you can compete in a space, like CRM as an example, or booking, whatever it is, but you got to find your your segment of it. And another segment I think that people never really think of is potentially it could be uh, in another country, right? Like sure. Maybe there's 50, com- maybe you have 50 competitors in the United States, but you do some research and you realize, well, none of them work in Spanish. Why don't we rewrite the software in Spanish? We'll sell to all of South America and Mexico and Spain and all these other places. And that's our market. And nobody else is focused on that market. Right. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because it, it brings me to something that, you know, you, you're always trying to, I, I told, I tell people you should try to 
always have a list of all the different ways that your platform or product can generate revenue. And you talk about expanding outside of your specific country. Well, not having a plan to do that can do things like, for example, Gigabook at first would only take nine digit phone numbers. And it was immediately a problem everywhere, but places that did nine digit phone numbers. So we had, there were so many places that phone numbers could go in and formats that it could come in. It was actually a really big undertaking for us to be compatible, to be used in Dublin. And and then uh, then I'm going to guess you made it so that your software allowed other phone numbers and then all your customers, United States hated it. Well, yeah, because we had to type the phone numbers in weird ways now that, that Americans aren't used to doing like putting a one in front of things. Yes, that's exactly that. That, triggered an immediate rollback and uh, me turning red and steam coming out of my ears partially because I was mad at myself. But, uh, you know, I I think we should talk about the ceiling and what you can get out of a marketplace. Um, We keep talking about niche and servicing specific things, but are there markets that just aren't big enough to even chase? Man. So I was talking to a guy yesterday who wanted to, he owned a software development company. He just created custom software for whoever, you know, would pay him to do it. Like, you know, there's lots of people that do that, but he wanted to have his own product. He wanted to make that leap to like us. We own a software company that sells a product. He wa- he wanted to do that, but he, uh, he was trying to figure out how he was going to do that. And that's why we were talking. And so I asked him like, so how are you going to do this? Uh, what is the product going to be? And he's like, well, I'm going to sell my company and I'm going to go build this and I'm going to do this. I'm like, so you're going to write all the software yourself. So how complicated of a product can you actually build without raising a bunch of capital and hiring a bunch of developers? You know, are you going to build something you can sell for like 50 bucks a month or something? You know, what, what is it you're, you're going to build? And I think that gets into your question, right? Is the complexity and um, how much, you know, the size of the market, the size of the product, and, and can you build that and fulfill it. And that was his problem is trying to figure out like, what can I build? Because obviously there are things you can build and it's like, how many people will buy this thing? Right. And, you know, you mentioned Gigabook and there's like millions of potential customers, you know, my product, uh, Stackify, our audience is millions of customers. And we have, we have customers in uh, 50 different countries, but um, for some things it's, you know, to your point, like what it was like, Oh, I want to build a booking system, but I only want to do, uh, cigar shops for people who come in and they want to come try cigars like that might be like, okay, there's three people that want to do that. Right. Like you got to figure out what your total addressable market is. And I'm not saying the next time you meet with an investor, you want to be like, well, it's a $3 trillion business, you know, opportunity like that. Don't do that either. Cause that makes you sound stupid, but you got to understand the market and know that there's enough of a need and, um, a- enough of a market out there. Like we have that problem with Stackify, right? Like, our customers are usually small, medium-sized businesses. They're 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 deploying their applications to the cloud. Like, how many people is that? Is that a thousand companies? Is it ten thousand companies? Sometimes it's really hard to know. Um, but one one problem that uh, you can have is like, say, I you, you create the best software in the world that solves a problem, and let's say there's only a thousand people. Well, let's say you you create the product and you find all a thousand of them, um, and they all say no. Then what do you do? You've, you've already went through your total addressable market. Like you literally can't sell your product to any other additional person, right? Like you have to figure out if the, if the market is big enough and how big the market is. And, and th- those are the kind of things that outside investors are going to really diagnose. They want to know. They want to know, like, know. And that's why I said, like, how high is the ceiling in here? Because you might hit that ceiling, which means that your business is no, never going to be worth more than half a million so dollars. So with both of our businesses, we don't even know how big the market is, right? Because it's impossible to, to get a name of every potential customer. Now you take Venn Solutions, for example. Our customers are car dealers. It's pretty easy to get a list of car dealers, yeah. right? Like, how many Ford dealers are there? How you many could, GM dealers? You could hit the end you of could, that list. You could yeah. get, you, we knew exactly there was 22,000 franchise dealers and, you know, maybe the bottom half of them were in rural markets or something and we would focus on them or whatever. But the point is we knew exactly who our customer base was. We knew but how big it was. That can also work to your advantage when trying to explain how effective your business has been at capturing market right. share. You can actually say, Hey, there's a definable amount. Like it, I would have to have a million gigabook users to say we had 4% of the small right, businesses. Sure. Yeah. Like, let's be realistic. Yeah. Like that's not going to happen. So, all right. So, 
How do you feel about raising money? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, let me put it this way. So I just I got a phone with a, a guy today. He was talking about he basically has a startup. He's got a website. He's got a product. It's ready to sell. He's got a few customers, and he's trying to figure out how to get to the next level, right? And he told me, he's like, Matt, I'm wearing 15 hats. Like, I'm the CEO. I'm the, the founder, the owner. I'm writing the code. I'm doing sales. I'm doing marketing. I was like, well, have you raised any capital yet? And he's like, well, I've thought about it, but I haven't done it yet. And I'm like, well, if you're going to do it, you're probably going to have to take off 14 of those hats that you're wearing because it's like a full-time job, right? And, and for him, is his time better spent getting customers so that he doesn't need funding or is it chasing funding, right? I mean, that's the problem that entrepreneurs have. Do you chase the funding or do you chase the customers? Which way do you go? Let me make it really basic. Raising money sucks. It does suck. Yeah. How good are you at being told no? And it's sort of like dating, right? How many times do you get told no in a row and you keep, you keep getting up to bat? I don't think it's the no part. It's the fact that I don't think I like to sit there and have to like sell myself over and over and over and who we are and what we do. And, and sometimes I'm like, God, that's a really dumb question. And I really want to respond with that saying that's a really dumb question or it's just, I, it's, it has to do with the no, but I think some of it is that not everybody's going to understand your business and your idea the way that you do. And if they don't, you might as well end the conversation at that point because they're not going to give you money if they don't understand what you do. Yep. And the thing is, too, is you you have to go. Now, I'm a salesperson at heart, so I'm a lot more resilient to the word no um, than a lot of people. It doesn't offend me or it doesn't, you know, I don't take it personally. I think the thing that is challenging for me when it comes to raising money or conversations I've had in the past is that, when someone wants to buy 50% of my business for 5% of what I really want for it. Right. And some of that, and I feel like I'm wasting my time or just, you know, really I'd like to be doing things to build my business, not to um, pass out pitch decks and, and one pagers and take phone calls and do all this stuff. Now I, I feel fortunate that I've, gotten enough street cred that I can have conversations with people fairly easily. But if you don't have that, you have an even harder battle to fight. Well, you know, before we decided to, to uh, talk about this topic today, you know, I've done a little research around, uh, yeah, what are my how, chances? How many people raise money Am and where they raise, funded? raise money from and all these things. And, you know, one of the stats I saw on some website, and this was for me randomly Google stuff, and the numbers are probably completely wrong. I'll give you the disclosure. But it said that the chances of a startup getting funded by a VC specifically, a VC, not an angel, not friends and family, but a VC, was one in 2,000. And we had discussed what even put you in that group. Like what mean? Like the guy yeah. I, I mentioned, like you've probably he's got already a, raised money in, at, at an angel or seed level and built something to even be in that group that can't be in the one percent. You're, you're several steps ahead, yeah. right? You're not. You're not the the person with the business plan and no business card. Well, why is that, Matt? Well, you you know the other thing I, I really saw that that really stood out to me was the vast majority of all money that every startup ever raises is actually friends and family money, right? It out, it was, there's more money is raised by friends and family than by angels and VCs, private equity, all of it combined. Um, probably because a lot of it is they're, they're small businesses that don't need a lot of capital, right? Like, like the guy I talked to today, you know, if he had a hundred grand or a couple hundred grand, that might get him just enough of the runway he needs to get the break even. Like that's what he told me on the phone. He's like, we're just trying to get to break even. Well, how much money do you need to do that? Is it just a hundred grand? Is it two hundred grand? Wait, you have wait, wait. Rich... let me. Let, you mean people don't like to invest money in businesses that are losing money? They don't like to, but they got to see how they get there, right? And um, that, that's why if you've got a, a, a rich uncle or a grandma or somebody, right, you can raise some money from. But you know how I did it, it at uh, my first company, Vin Solutions. We had a VC, we had a Visa card. Yeah, and my company was the same way. If you read Million Dollar Bedroom, my first funding method was getting all of my friends and family's credit cards. Yeah, together. Yeah. I said, "Hey, do you want do you want to earn some free points?" Yeah. Well, and, and I and I leveraged all of that, and that was a very risky move because well, if that went south on me, I was going to really piss off. A lot I, I of had 
two or three credit cards that were maxed out. And I think I had 40 or $50,000 in credit card debt. And, you know, I don't know if that counts towards the the friends and family around, but yeah, I mean, it's basically, it's it's your own money. It's your friend's money. It's your uncle's money. It's whoever that's got some money. And those are the people that are going to be willing to bet on you, right? Wait, can I go to the bank and get a loan? You might be able to get an SBA loan or something like that, but no, but only for certain types of business, Probably right? Probably not. Not for a startup, not for something that has no history. Even the SBA wants to see that your business has some kind of track record. Look, if, you th- if your plan for funding your business is you think you're going to the bank to get a loan, you're not. Banks don't give loans to new businesses. Not even, not even if I'm like going to like open a McDonald's franchise or something like that? That would be a different scenario because that's not a startup as we've defined it. That is a business. And by the way, there's still not McDonald's isn't going to give you the franchise if you have to go get a loan. Right. They want you to have $4 million liquid. You've got to be somewhat of an accredited investor or whatever yourself. It's a two-way street. So, you know, look, the whole process of raising money can be infuriating and it, and it, oftentimes can reward those that are diligent enough to keep fighting the good fight. Um, Let me shed a little light on this and why, you know, 2000 companies and maybe one of them will get something. These people that, that control these funds and work in these firms are literally overwhelmed. They're getting a hundred, 200, 500, who knows a huge amount of business plans. And that's why you can't send a 45 page document. The guy that got a hundred of those no. today isn't going to read it. He's and that's, that's why they won't sign an NDA, by the way. Yeah. Don't ever ask them to sign NDA. That, that just goes to show you have no idea what you're doing. They're going to steal my idea. No, they're looking at 300 ideas a day. Oh yeah, that's right. So with that, you have to consider some of this stuff. So here's the thing. If you're seeing a hundred to 300 pitches a day, you're going to have to narrow it down to the stuff that looks really good and looks really good now. So it's somebody who has traction, who has industry experience, who probably has already raised some money, who is well on their way, right? They, 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 most of the people that are getting funding are people who are past a lot of these hurdles, right? They're they're looking for fuel on the fire, right? I mean, that's where StackFi is at. Like we just raised a, a small round of funding and it was really for growth. Like we are past all those initial hurdles, and it's growth where it's really hard to raise money is the very, very early seed stage, which usually is not VCs. VCs don't usually invest there unless it's like some really disruptive technology. Well, when you're ready to, if you're going to actually accept an investment at a seed round, you're going to be selling your shares cheap. Yeah. You're going to really be giving cheap. up a big, you're going to be giving up a lot. And those, the, those type of investors are assuming that they're going to buy 10 companies and nine of them are going to fail. Yeah. And they're going to hit a big enough home run on the one that doesn't. And they don't care if the good. other nine blow up. They don't. They don't care right. at all. They'd actually prefer that you, that you failed very quickly so they can write it off and move right. on and not have, you know, they're, they're the biggest fear that I've, you know, uncovered as I've talked to some of these people is getting stuck. They're like, right. now I'm not only having to put money in, but I'm having to spend effort well, and time and, and keep up with this. And I know people who have been through these horror stories of like, they took, you know, uh, a VC or some type of investor and let them have kind of a majority stake in the company and gave up control. And sometimes they do really crazy things and you lose it. But, you know, well, I, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what some of the different. All right. So let's just say that you do have a good idea and you do have a company that has some traction and you're now at the point, And I like to use the term hyper growth. You're raising money because what you've done is shown to be repeatable. And it is just not possible for you to grow and accumulate money fast enough to really light the torch on that, you know, and put you into this hyper speed growth pattern. Right. And that's, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to, I'll never take investment money. Well, you're not that smart if you're turning it down at that point. I have a great example of this. So uh, there's a local company here that I'm talking to about potentially investing in. And I'm mostly investing in because I know the founders, I've worked with them before, but they're at that stage. They, They have a phenomenal product. They know if they hire a salesperson, that that salesperson can sign up five new accounts a month. And the problem is they can't afford to hire more salespeople, right? They don't have, they it's don't that, have the it's excess initial, capital. It's that initial three to six months that yeah. will sink them that they can't yeah. get through. So, and that's what the investor's there to help you do. Yeah. So for them, they, they want to raise money because they want to go hire five salespeople today. 
Otherwise, they might hire one now, maybe one in six months, and, one and, in a and year. And not doing it now presents such a high level of opportunity cost right. that it's just really not worth it. I, I, you're they better, can grow faster. You're better as the as the person that owns 50% of this well-capitalized, hyper-growth machine that is just formed. You're way better in the long run there than owning 90% of your poorly funded not right. growing very quickly, losing market share to your competitor business. So let's here I am, and I've now I've, I'm getting calls back and interest from VCs. So I want to talk a little bit about what some of the different types of funding and scenarios and setup are. So you're saying there's different types of investments. What what does that mean exactly? Well. You're going to have to become very familiar with the way that deals are structured, the ways that investors put money into your company and how they expect to either gain shares or different forms of ownership based on different criteria. Well, don't they also expect different uh, investor rights and um, information and control and they want to be uh, guaranteed to get their money back even if you don't? I mean... there's a lot of those things, right? There sure is. And every every deal is different. Yep. And the the best thing that you can do is have such a firm grasp on how some of those things work. You gotta you have to really make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into before you take that check, before you take that deposit. Because not doing things in a way that you understand are gonna lead to certain situations where you can rapidly lose control of your entire company, you can get thrown out of your own company. Like, for example, if you don't have control of your own board of directors, those people now have the ability to shove you out the door. Well, and I'll give you a good idea. uh, Another good example of this. A lot of startup investments will actually take all of the equity away from the founder, all of it, and invest it back to them. So that um, the investor is protected in case the founder decides to like go nuts and leave. So sometimes you you give up everything and you're basically earning it back. Um, and so yeah, you got to watch out to uh, what kind of deals you're getting into there. So, but so what are some of the basic instruments though that people don't understand? Well, I think the thing that is probably the most common and is really my least favorite is the convertible note. So what does that mean? What's a convertible note? A convertible note is a debt instrument that your investor can later convert into shares of your business based on specific timeframes or criteria occurring. Okay. Do you want to know why I don't like those notes? Why don't you like them? They put you in a, in a scenario of debt. You're now, you're basically, you just put a lien on your company and these things oftentimes mature after say 24 months and you better make sure that you can meet the criteria. They're oftentimes driven by uh, time or other rounds of funding coming in. Well, they're, they're usually based on the, the idea that they're going to convert though, right? I mean, right. usually people are using them because they're working towards a series A or whatever it is. But what but happens if know, that doesn't come? Well, or... And I think people primarily use them because they don't know the valuation. That's the biggest problem, right? Like, oh, we think we're going to raise $5 million and our company's worth $20 million or whatever it is. But they're doing a convertible note before that, and the investors can can get in on the note and basically know, okay, well, when they figure it all out and they eventually get the $5 million, I'll be able to convert into that. But yeah, to that point, like, and that may never happen. Well, the, right? you know, the problem is, is you could sell what you think is roughly 20% of your company for a certain amount. Now this time frame expires or you don't get another round of funding. And now, depending on the way it's written, you could be in a position of liability of literally losing your company. Mm. And that isn't always commonplace, but there's other things too that oftentimes are attached to convertible notes like actually charging interest. Right, sure. And I'm not a big fan of that because if you're my investor, you're my partner. And that means that you're not running juice. <laughs> but wait, wait, I'm not your partner. I just want to make money. Well, see, I just want to invest to make money, though. Then you're not the right investor for okay, me. Okay, all right. So, you know, with with investors, you'll hear often hear the term smart money. I want investors that are also, even if it's not full-time, are somewhat active 
and helping my business, my idea, or anything I'm doing find a positive result. And that can be through the connections that they have with other people or companies, or, you know, sometimes you might find investors that have investments in other products that benefit from yours and that other product right. now doing business with right. each other. So, so what other kinds of instruments do they need to know, right? There's convertible notes, uh, and there's some new thing called safe. Yeah. Well, what it, what's a safe? That you put money in? Yeah, actually it stands for simple agreement for future equity. So it came out of Y Combinator, right? Yeah. And, and for those that aren't familiar Y Combinator is is it's Google's right? It's Google's like no, startup. School. No, I don't think it's, it's related not, to Google. It's not. No, it's just it's it's just it was then one of the original incubators. Then they incubators. fund it. They it's one of the original incubators. Yeah. So you can submit your idea to Y Combinator, and they kind of it's kind of like startup school, right? And they kind of walk you through it. But with that, they had created an instrument called the Simple Agreement for Future Equity, which accomplishes a lot of the same things that a convertible note does, such as maybe establishing what that equity is valued at later, but it doesn't put the company or the startup founder in a position of debt. So it's not a, it's not a note. It is not a debt it's instrument. Only, it's only an instrument to participate in the round. And it will say when money comes in later, we're now in a better position to establish what the shares and equity of this company are worth. And it does still okay. convert into ownership elements. Now, here's the thing. It also can work the other way. If the valuation ends up being a lot lower, it'll often have things like a discount attached right. to it, which means I can now get that lower valuation minus 15% more. So, so yeah, I think the, the safe and convertible note are definitely things that people need to know about. But a lot of times when they're getting uh, investment from friends and family or a local angel investor, they're potentially not using any of those, right? No, it's, it's like usually really simple. Send me, the, send me the money. You're buying right. 10% of my company for X amount. Yeah. And that is, without a doubt, the least complicated, most straightforward, right. and often best way to establish ownership in your business. It's just usually not what's going to happen from a more sophisticated or complex investment strategy that comes from someone like a venture capitalist. Well, so we've, I think we've talked about a lot of good things on, on this episode and uh, from should you try and raise capital, some of the basics of uh, what an angel investor is, some of the basic instruments of how investments are done. But I think more than anything, I think the key takeaway from this is raising money is a hell of a lot of work. It's right? complicated. It's a full-time job. Yeah. So should you chase customers or chase money uh, or maybe chase your uncle or aunt or grandma or somebody who's got a little bit of money? Well, I told you, I think raising money sucks. So I'm going to get back to work trying to build my business. All right. And hopefully I don't run out of money on the way to doing that. All right. Let's get back to work. See you, bud. See you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.